Let's now look at the passage, Matthew chapter 22, verse 1 to 14. Let us pray. Father, speak your truths to us. Hard as your truths may be, speak them into our hearts that we may take your word to heart. But assure us too that even as we follow you, that yours, hard and painful as it may call us to make sacrifices, it is still the way of the light burden and the easy yoke that we may find rest for our souls, refreshment for ourselves as we walk your path. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Wedding Banquet. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1 to 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed the man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In some of these, the parables that Jesus tells, there is an element of the ridiculous. Remember we talked about um, the parable of, what was that again? The, the, the parable Sorry, uh, just slipped my mind. Um, we were talking about this parable of the king. Um, oh man, this is bad. Anyway, uh, that's not too important. But this is a rather ridiculous parable. Because in this parable, a king had invited his noblemen, the king had invited important guests to his son's wedding. Now, it wasn't as though this was a weak king or he had no power because it says that in verse 7, the king was enraged and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. So this was a powerful king and the people knew it. He wasn't a helpless one-man show. He had power and he had an army. But when he invited these guests, and these were not ordinary guests, they were probably noblemen, they were probably people of high honour, they may have been civil servants, they may have been people who worked under the king. Who would ever reject an invitation like this? 
I suspect that the reason in this story, the reason why they turned down the invitation and all of them refused, some were contemptuous, they seized the servants and killed them, others went just continue in their work in the fields, yet another to his business, was because they had very little regard for the king's son. If it were a king's coronation, if it were a king's assignment, they would have gone. But here was his son's wedding, and they didn't think much of the king's son because he wasn't someone they could respect. And because they were contemptuous, they despised the king's son, they said, none of us are going. And if you are going to persist, you're going to beg us, you're going to send servants to invite us again, we'll mistreat your servants, we'll kick them out, we chase them, because we really can't stand your son, because we really are contemptuous of your son. And this has been the theme that Jesus had been teaching. Just a few days ago, we talked about Jesus saying, the stone which the builders rejected will be the cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected, because this was the stone that everyone looked at and wasn't very impressed. It wasn't even to be fit to be a stone on the wall or on the roof, much less the cornerstone. It was unimpressive. It was uninspiring. It was just nothing. And when people looked at this stone, then they said, at this prince, at this son of the king, they thought, well, it's nothing to, to honour him about. He's not going to be our king. He's not great. He has no stature. Perhaps, what did Jesus stand for? The Bible tells us in Isaiah that he, there was nothing much to admire about him. People hid their faces from him. But what did he stand for? Perhaps the best illustration of what the prince, the king, Jesus Christ, the son of the king stood for, can be learned from his three temptations. First temptation was to turn bread into, turn stones into bread. Jesus had fasted for seven days, 40 days and he was really hungry. And the devil came and said, hey, look, if, here are the stones. If you could turn these stones into bread, if you are the son of God, you could do this. But Jesus' mind was not about helping himself. He never used any of his power for himself or to meet his own needs. Throughout his ministry, Jesus worked powerfully, but every miracle that Jesus worked was for someone else, was to minister to someone, was to give help, was to feed someone else, give life to another person. Never would he use it for his own benefit. And the reason was this, that Jesus did not come to earth to enjoy himself, to to just feed himself to meet his own needs. Jesus came to earth to fulfill the work of the Father. And hence he said, man does not live by bread alone, meaning I do not just feed myself, I do not live by taking good care of myself just like that. It didn't mean that he starved himself, it simply meant that he did not use miracles just to benefit himself as a privilege. But my purpose of living is to do the Father's will. But the leaders, the elders, the chief priests of the temple, the Pharisees, they saw opportunities for benefit. That if they were placed in a position of authority, they could use that position to benefit themselves. Who would want to follow a king who would not benefit himself, who would give sacrificially all the time? The high officials would not honour a king like that. Even in the temple worship, they used the temple worship to aggrandize themselves. When, when God 
asked them to build a beautiful temple. They used that temple, but not only to worship God, but to give themselves power and authority and wealth. They made use of God's work. And when the Son of God came and refused to make use of all the power that he had for himself, people would not want to follow him. The second temptation was about vanity. The devil took Jesus up to a high mountain, high up and said, if you will jump down, it is written that God will not allow you, will send his angels to pick you up and will now not allow you to hurt your foot. It was vanity. It was power that he could show off that he was invincible, that he was powerful. And the Jewish leaders needed that kind of leader because they needed someone who could show off to the Romans to show that he was king of kings and lord of lords, that he was invincible, that he had all the power ever. They needed one who would promote himself, push himself up as the great saviour, not to the common people. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he rode on the donkey, not on the steed, not in power and grandeur and military power. The people who were cheering him on were children and the poor and the ordinary people. But who wants a king to lead them? When you are under siege, when you are a nation that needs to destroy, to set yourself free from the Romans, who wants a leader who will not put himself up, who would not be vain, who would not pretend or behave as though he was invincible? And then the third temptation was that God, that the devil would give him everything, the whole of all creation, the wealth of the cities, the wealth of all the nations, if he would do it the devil's way. The devil's way would be the way of bullying, of manipulation, of power politics, of deceit, of lying, all the underhanded ways that would twist people's arms. But Jesus refused to do that. Jesus taught the way of meekness. He said, you will inherit the kingdoms of the earth if you are meek. Blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom, for they shall inherit the earth. That Jesus would not come with power and force and twist people's arms. He would come to serve. And as he served, he would win the, earth, the kingdoms of the earth because of his love for them. The things that Jesus stood for did not inspire confidence, did not give the people reason to say, this is our king. They would have despised Jesus. And so in this parable, as Jesus said it, it was very likely that as the noblemen and the leaders and the civil servants looked at the son of the king, they said, this is unimpressive. I don't care. Let's all go back to our own business. And if he bothers us anymore, let's just mistreat the servants. This is not the kind of king we will worship. This is not the kind of king whose wedding we would attend. This is the Son of the King. And this is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And what then, what then Jesus was telling in this parable was that the one whom you reject because you think you are contemptuous of him is the one who will be the King of Kings. He is the Son of the King. In a sense, this parable was about the rejection, God's rejection of the Jews, that he would bring it to the Gentiles. And yet it is also a parable to all of us because we too 
are like the chief priests and the elders who would reject the King of Kings because he's not what we think he is. He's not what we expect him to be. You know, one of the biggest insult to someone or the most offensive thing we could do to someone is to tell the person, I admire you, and then to say all the qualities that the person does not stand for. Have you ever had someone to tell, who tells you, wow, you are a great person, <laughs> and then you are a big liar, you're so good at deceiving people, you're such a bully, we really admire you, and say, wow, this is not me. And it's rather ridiculous, but, but that was often what we proclaim our God to be. We call ourselves Christians, we worship Jesus, the King. And yet in each of these temptations that Jesus resisted, we fall prey to it. First, using the power of God, using the things of God, the authority of God for self-aggrandizement. We live in an age of greed. Every opportunity we think of making profit. And it's okay to make profit, to make a living. I think all of us should be making a living. We shouldn't be getting working for free. But it's one thing to work for a living. It's another to work for greed. And the greed culture has moved right into the nation, into civilization. The culture of greed has moved into our lives, into the Christian nations. America is known to be the most Christian of all nations. I studied theology there. But they are also about the most greedy of all nations. I remember serving in prison fellowship and we were working with um, inmates with HIV and we were looking for the most affordable medicine to help HIV sufferers. And that was when I discovered that America had signed treaties with Singapore preventing us from buying generic drugs and the HIV drugs were just astronomical. We couldn't even go across the causeway to buy cheaper drugs that would have saved many lives. Often we were held ransom by rich nations, by rich people who sought to be greedy and to make more. But I remember a story that I read long ago about the Quakers. The Quakers were very spirit-led people. And at a time of revolution when there was a famine, all the merchants thought it's so easy just to inflate your prices. After all, it's demand and supply. If demand increases and supply goes down, you overcharge. That's common sense, we thought. And yet the Quakers took it, didn't take that for granted. They took it seriously and they prayed and they insisted that all of them would charge reasonable prices, the same prices as when there was no scarcity. While everyone else was trying to profiteer and price gouging and making the most of it, the, the, the Quakers refused to do that. And they said, we will be honest and we will charge honest fees. But if we are talking about a saviour, a God who does not use any of his power even to enrich himself, to feed himself, to empower himself for his own sake, then we as Christians need to think also about the culture of greed. What is reasonable? What is twisting someone's arm because they're in need and getting a better bargain out of them? We think that that is normal way of life. And perhaps for many of us, it has been. It's common sense. And yet, have we ever thought of a God who is fair, who is just, who cares for people and he would give generously a God who is not greedy, 
if we stand as Christians, then let this be at least a consideration in our thoughts. I cannot say what is overcharging and what's undercharging, that's subjective. But at least if this thought keeps recurring in our minds, that we are not to be greedy, we are to be fair and just and to give to others, then we would have started on our journey of really respecting and honouring our Lord Jesus Christ. The second one is about vanity. We have also been, become a vain people. Vain in various ways. We want we are attention-seeking. We often want all of our good deeds to be publicised and affirmed and recognised. Jesus refused to use any of his power for his own aggrandizement. He did not want grandiosity. Sometimes as we do good work, we want to be recognized. When we work miracles, when God gives us power, we want to be affirmed. We want to be not just affirmed, affirmed is fine, but we want to be admired. We want people to stare in awe at us. But the church has always to keep a low profile. A church always has to serve its people without wanting praise from others. A church must always serve quietly, ministering to people lovingly, but refusing to take credit all the time. What about bullying? Well, bullying has also become a culture. We think of the strength, the power, right? He who, he who is more powerful is always right. Might is right. And that also has infiltrated much of our lives. In politics, there was this controversy about Israel, Jerusalem being uh, the capital of Israel being moved to Jerusalem. And many say, yes, this is prophetic. This is the work of God. But it may be the work of God, the will of God that Jerusalem be returned to Israel. But what's the way that God does that work? Does God do it by displacing Palestinians? Does God do it by bullying others by force? Or does He do it by love and gentleness? Do we continue to live by this one guiding point? The blessed are the meek, for there they will inherit the earth. How do we leverage ourselves? How do we use power that we have, authority that we have? Do we persuade people? Do we serve people? Or do we use it for our own purposes? Do we force people, manipulate people, deceive people that we might get our way? You know, in, in all of these then, if we say we stand for Jesus, if we say that He is our King and our God, then we have to represent Him correctly. Because if we do not, then we are actually rejecting Him altogether. We are saying that we want Jesus, but we want Jesus after our own image. We want Him to do the things that we want to do. Well, that's first half, first part of the, of the parable. The second part then was that when, when these officials and noblemen and the invited guests refused to come, the king just said they're not worthy, they don't deserve to come. 
And so he said to his servants, go out to the streets, go everywhere and look, take the good and the bad, everyone who comes, bring them into the banquet, fill the banquet hall. But when the banquet hall was filled, he saw one man who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he approached the man and said, how did you come here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. And then the king said, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside in the darkness. That was a rather harsh thing to do. Wasn't the king expecting that if you had the poor and the, and the penniless and the good and the bad come in, that some would be badly dressed? But that's not the point. You see, in a wedding, ancient wedding, wedding clothes are provided for the guests. This is so that the guests would come in dressed appropriately for the function. Some may be very poor, they may have torn clothes, they may not have been able to afford expensive clothes. It didn't matter. Because at the wedding banquet, the host would then provide clothes, grand clothes for each of them that they could change into or they could drape over themselves and come in. But this would be befitting of the occasion. I experienced that once long ago when I was invited to a very, very posh restaurant and they said, um, no shorts, no slippers, no uh, collarless T-shirt. You got, all got to wear shirts and pants and all that. And of course, a friend of mine went in flip-flops and shorts and he was, um, he was not allowed in. But he wasn't just not allowed in, he was ushered into a little wardrobe, a cloak room. And he was shown quite a few clothes to fit him. Long pants, nice shirt, nice shoes and said, well, you've got to wear one of these. Just borrow from us. We'll lend you for the duration of this dinner. But you've got to wear something nice. And so they dressed him up and he went and joined us for the dinner. But one has to be dressed appropriately for that dinner. And the problem with this man who wasn't, wasn't because he couldn't afford clothes, but simply because he had no respect for the king or for the occasion. He simply didn't care and didn't care to look good, didn't care that he didn't look good. The king had invited everyone, never mind how clean, how dirty, how good, how bad you are, all just come. But one thing he expected of his guests, that they be dressed for the occasion because that was respectful to the host. For us too, we are all invited to the banquet. We're all invited to celebrate with God, to receive His love, to receive all the blessings that He has. But we need two things. First, to acknowledge that we need to come respectfully before Him. And secondly, to acknowledge that dressed as we are, it's not fit for the King. And therefore, each of us needs also to be clothed in Colossians 3, 7, it says be clothed with compassion, with kindness, with goodness. But let me tell you a little bit more about my story. At the first sermon that I made, I told you that I was very disillusioned, wanted to leave the church and all that. It wasn't because it's hard to be a pastor. I think my job isn't any harder than all of your jobs. What is really hard, I tell you, is living righteously. I think that's the biggest struggle. It's not about being a pastor, not being a pastor, or being anything else. The hardest thing in life is being righteous. It's harder for a pastor because if you're unrighteous, how do you come on, come on Sunday and pulpit and preach? But it's no different. 
the difficulty in living is it's difficult to be righteous. And I struggled a lot with righteousness and with unrighteousness. And that was why so often I wanted to leave the ministry. But I remember one time when I struggled hard and I had become very, very bitter. And I hadn't talked to God for months. I haven't read the Bible for months. And I took my Bible downstairs to the void deck and I just wanted to know why on earth I even wanted to be a pastor in the first place. I mean, better live sinfully outside than to live with guilt all the time. And as I opened the Bible, I started with Romans chapter 1 and it talked about all our sins, our murderous desires, our sexual desires, our, our unwanted sexual desires, our desires to deceive and everything else. And as I read the whole list of sins, the Holy Spirit said to me, well, Mingli, that's you. And I fell to pieces because I realised that really was me. And so I said to God, God, time to quit, really. How do you expect me to pastor a church when I'm like this, this sinful? And then the Holy Spirit said, but Ming Li, I still love you very much and I forgive all your sins. And I said, God, I don't believe you. I wish I could believe you, but I don't. And then I continued reading and Holy Spirit, and then I reached um, Romans chapter 4 about Abraham, how God told Abraham that he was going to be a father at age 100. Abraham found it hard to believe, but the Bible said, in the end, Abraham believed. And I said, that's dumb. I mean, it's silly for a 90-year-old man to believe that in 10 years' time, he's going to have a kid. Doesn't make sense, but Abraham believed. And the Spirit said, it's hard for you to believe that I've forgiven you completely, and I love you very much. Just believe. And as I prayed, the Spirit just released my heart and said, you are cleansed. But I had a new problem. Sure, I'm all forgiven and loved by God, but how do you continue like this? How do you continue to live a life like this? How do you continue to minister when you, when you are a mess like this? And I said to God, God, so like that, how? And the Spirit said, I will live through you and I will minister through you. And I began to learn what that meant. That I couldn't be righteous on my own. I couldn't try as I could, try as I wanted to. I couldn't be righteous because my own tendencies would make me sin. I couldn't minister because I wasn't good enough. But as I learned day by day what it meant for Christ, the Spirit to work, to minister, live through me, what that meant was simply this. If I was really angry, I'd say, God, Help me to see differently. Help me to see why I'm wrong. Help me to calm down. Help me to think differently. If I face a challenge, the first thing I do is to say, God, help me to figure this out honestly, your way. But in each of the things that I encountered, whether it was a conflict, whether I was angry, whether I was feeling horrible, I learned to come first before God and say, God, help me make a difference in my life change me. And you know what? It seemed really easy after a while. It was almost like whenever I asked God, God, calm me down, stop me from raging and screaming, help me to be meek. When I was driving like a devil, he says, stop me, God, make me drive meekly. And each time I paused to pray, God made a difference in my life. And that's where the paradox is. It was so easy when I paused and asked God to help. 
But it's so difficult because so often I didn't want to pause and ask God for help. See, the human nature is such, I would rather be sarcastic. I would rather be fierce and caustic. I'd rather scold and scream and have it my way. Why would I stop and pause and say, God, let me be meek. God, let me be compassionate. God, let me be truthful. God, let me yield to the other person and not insist on my own way. The problem wasn't that God wasn't helping me. The problem was that I wasn't willing to let God help me. And I think that's the struggle we all have as well. That we will discover that as we pause and say, God, change my life. God, help me. God, make me honest. God, make me compassionate. God, teach me how to love. Love my enemies. Love those I hate and who hate me. God, teach me how to forgive. That God makes it easy. God comes to you and helps you to do what you thought was impossible. That's the easy part. But the struggle we each have is whether we are even willing to say, God, help me to do that. But I've learned then that we cannot go on living, holding on to our own sin, refusing to recognize that the clothes we wear are not fit to come before God. We need to come to a point where we realize that only when Christ lives through us and in us, only when God cleanses us and helps us with our lives every day and every moment can we come to God. Because in our filthy rags, in our sin, we cannot come close to God. And though we have been invited, and so Jesus says, for many are invited, few are chosen. And that's true. Though we are invited to come to God, God doesn't hold it against us. That God loves us and forgives us. Yet we, make, we do have to make that difficult step of saying, God, I am willing. God, I want to be changed. God, let me grow. God, transform my life. And so I'd like to share a song. Um, I'd like to sing a song to you. Um, I'm not a great singer. I'm an even worse guitarist, but let me figure this out. It's an old song. It's an old song that um, was popular in the, 70, in the 80s, perhaps. It's called, I Thank You, Lord, for the Trials That Come My Way. If you know this song, well, sing it in your heart and um, sing it also. Perhaps you can mouth the words or just worship together. I thank you, Lord, for the trials that come my way, in that way I can grow each day, as I let you lead, and I thank you, Lord, let those trials break, in that process of growing, I can learn to care. But it goes against the way I am To put my human nature down And let the Spirit take control of all I do 
Cause when those trials come, my human nature shouts the things to do, and God's soft prompting can be easily ignored. And I thank you, Lord, with the trial I feel inside, that you're here to help lead and guide me away from wrong. Cause you promised, Lord, that with every test that your way of escaping be easier to bear. That goes against the way I am to put my human nature down and let the Spirit take control of all I do. Cause when those trials come, my human nature shouts the things to do, and God's soft prompting can be easily ignored. And I thank you, Lord, for the victory that growing brings in surrender of everything. Life is so worthwhile, and I thank you, Lord, that when everything's put in place, out in front I can see your face, that's where you belong. Let us pray. Teach us your ways, O God, and let us love your ways. Because you gave us a son who is so different from what we expect of a king. You gave us a son who reflects your nature, and your nature is so different from what we would expect of a God. We would expect a God who is grasping, who calls, who demands worship, who demands everything that we have. But you are God who gives instead and gives and gives. We expect a God who promotes yourself and calls your servants to promote themselves, but you don't do that. Instead, you give yourself to us. You walk the way of humility. You wash your disciples' feet. You serve. You call yourself a servant. We often expect the king to use all his power to vanquish his enemies, but you win our hearts by your meekness and your servanthood. Teach us to learn these things of you, that indeed we may truly be worshippers of you, men, women, and children who hold you in the deepest reverence, not in an imagined way, not in the ways that we want you to be, but in the way that you are. That indeed we may know you as a servant king, worship you as such. But we ask too that you allow us to see how filthy our lives are, how dark and unclean our hearts are. 
that we may not be presumptuous and take for granted that we can just walk into your presence, though you invite us, though lovingly you call us, though lovingly you call us your children, cause us, Lord, to be mindful of our sinfulness, that we may let your Spirit live through us, day by day, moment by moment. Father, each moment we still struggle and we resist because we'd rather be selfish and we'd rather be vain and we'd rather be hostile and disobedient and sarcastic and hateful. Father, incline our hearts to you. Cause us to want to be cleansed by you and transformed by you that we may indeed be clothed with compassion, with mercy, with love, with forgiveness. And then, Lord, you help us to see that that is indeed the way of the light burden and the easy yoke. That as we surrender ourselves to you, that truly is the way of life, of joy, of rivers of living water flowing through us. And that is easy because as we allow your Spirit to transform us, Lord, indeed, we find righteousness and more and more easily we find it. Help us, Lord, as your people then, that each day as we struggle with our sin and our human nature, that you will help us to put that to death, that we may live in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.